0: Welcome to Calliope's Sanctum, a story podcast hosted by me, writer Sylvia V. Lindstedt. This podcast is dedicated to Calliope, primordial and first muse of epic poetry and ecstatic song in ancient Greece. This podcast is a place of sanctuary for her oldest stories. It is a return to the wild garden, to the spring to the ground of being and the source of inspiration in the earth. Here, we honor Calliope as muse of earth. Here, you will find some of the stories beneath the stories of old Europe, short fictional and poetic pieces written and read by me that explore elements of indigenous old European mythology, a term coined by the late archaeologist Maria Gambutas, with a focus on pre-Hellenic, pre-patriarchal Greece. Come sit with us in the honeyed light, among the ripe pomegranates, in Calliope's sanctuary, where the stories that arise directly from the ground of being and life force can still be safely told and celebrated. Come lean against the sun-warmed stones with the fragrance of propolis and myrrh in the air and the trees heavy with autumn quince. This is the garden before the fall, a sanctuary for all hearts in this time. Join us and be revived. Podcast sound editing is by Simon Linstead. Podcast art is by Catherine Seek. And podcast music is by Yanis Linardakis. So welcome back to Calliope Sanctum. It's been a little while since I shared an episode and I'm thrilled to be here in bulk recording this new episode for all of you it felt like an auspicious moment to open up a new cycle of story to share with you as the earth begins to wake back up in these beautiful early days of February these early days of the green rising up from the dark earth to meet the air and the rain I love these holy days, and I somewhat spontaneously received the impulse, the message to share something special with all of you starting right now. So with the recording beginning on in that felt um, important to me. So I'm going to be sharing over the next four weeks, the next moon cycle roughly, my novella The Dark Country and it's the title story or title piece in my book, Our Lady of the Dark Country, which so many of the stories that I've shared on the podcast thus far have been from. And The Dark Country makes up a good portion of the book, and it was the inspiration for the title of the book itself, Um, coming from an incredible essay by Ursula Le Guin, when she spoke to this idea of the dark country as this this realm that the feminine and that women know, and I um, will put in the show notes a link to that essay for you to read in full because it's really profound. But this novella came to me when I was visiting the Greek island of Cephalonia, so it's one of the um, Ionian islands in the Ionian Sea, one of the more wet and verdant of the Greek islands, and. I was staying there for a more extended visit. It was my first extended visit in Greece for 3 months. And this story just started to come through. And what's really powerful about it to me now, when I look at it from the vantage that I'm sitting now as I have spent, you know, a year in Crete and, you know, piecing together the months that I've been there and spent so much time researching Minoan Crete now and piecing together my research with dreams, with instincts, with visions. I realized that this novella was my first vision of Minoan Crete, but I didn't really know almost anything about it. I knew about the work of Maria Gimbutas, the Lithuanian archaeologist, and her work connected to old Europe and this culture beneath the Hellenic stratum. So I knew about this and I had this sense of an older language than the Indo-European languages that we know now, kind of as the root language groups of Europe. So, but I had this sense of an older language that was the old European language that was pre-Indo-European, that was pre-patriarchal. So that was coming through in this, in this novella. Um, but you'll see and you'll sense perhaps some of the other threads and um, what do I, what else do I want to say about that? I intentionally set this story on an imaginary version of the Island of Kefalonia because I wanted to separate myself somewhat from the history um, just so that I had a little bit more freedom to, to play and explore. So That's where some of these threads that I realize now were echoes of Minoan Crete and of old European culture are coming through. And this story of the conquest of an island, which I at the time was likening to something kind of like a Roman conquest or Egyptian empire conquest of... Of one of these Greek inspired islands, you know, this imaginary Greek island, those are kind of the threads and the themes that I was using. Now I see it as um, an echo of the Mycenaean takeover of Minoan Crete. But it is also its own its own piece. So I don't want to make too much of a big deal about this this resonance with Minoan Crete, but it's quite powerful to me now when I when I read this and when I connect with what was coming through in this very organic way, this way that was, pure and virgin between me and the island of Catalonia, and these old voices in the land of Greece. So I think that's all I'll share for now. It's quite a lot of an intro, but I just wanted to frame it in that way. And then you can see what you pick up on and what you feel. So again, remember, this is a imagined version of a Greek island. So I did take some liberties with names, And with playing a little bit with um, Greek words as echoes of an older language that the women, the generations of women in this story knew. And I just want to honor this story as well as the ground, the foundation for this path that I'm now on with this work. This feels like it was a beginning point and it feels potent to share at this moment what came through in such an organic way. From that island, from that sacred time that I spent there, um, in another era of my life now, at at the end of a very long and precious relationship that I was in at that time, um, this story was was a bridge and a threshold, and I'm still learning from it now. Okay, I think that's all. I'm going to begin, and I'm going to share this in four parts over the next four weeks, as I said, so you can tune in each week to hear the next part. So I just want to make a quick disclaimer for listeners, um, a trigger warning for the story. So um, this novella does have scenes of violence and um, scenes that reference sexual assault um, and rape. So for anybody um, who that might be triggering for, just to warn you, Um, It's not explicit, but it is present in the story context. The Dark Country One Once she wakes, everything Star, womb, Hand, hoof, cave, thread, boat, tide, bat, prince, lace is her matter. Women especially should take care if they do not want their hands to do her bidding. Hers which is ruthless, beautiful beyond words and just. Her justice the circle that knows no end. Of earth in the old language. Two. The day the men from Tar brought the bandit girl Lilit back to the newly conquered Acropolis at Crania, a small earthquake shook the island of Kefthira. It wasn't strong enough to dislodge anything more than a few loose stones from low walls and startle the goats. But what the earthquake shifted below the ground could not be seen. And in all the city, only the old charwoman, Areti, had the vaguest idea. Lilith was just one of a cartload, the latest prisoners brought in from the Tarish conquests along the southern coast. She sat apart, very straight and alone in the back corner against the wood, her knees to her chest and her arms around them. Like the other women in the cart, there were bruises across her body, But unlike the others, in their torn yellow shifts and linens, she wore tanned goatskins, bloody now, and no shoes. She didn't weep or moan or prattle. She didn't move at all and hardly blinked. The black intensity of her eyes, staring at nothing, made her look feral. It frightened the other women, though she was the youngest among them, a girl of just thirteen. When the earth shook and the cart horses bolted, she did not make a noise or stir in fright. She kept as still as before, staring at her long, thin hands, like a girl made not of flesh, but of stone. That morning, the city of Crania smelled of rain. Small purple crocuses pressed through the red earth. Pomegranates near ripe hung russet and beaded with silver. Thunder had filled the night and bolts of violet, At dawn, hearth fires from the houses of the common people, both in the city and on the plain around it, sent smoke up to the clouds, full of offered meat and prayers to the one who brought thunder, beseeching that their homes be spared lightning, and thanking him for rain. Many houses bore olive branches over the lintels for protection, or the dried bodies of kingfishers hung at the hearth, iridescent blue. By his bedroom window, naked, the Prince of Tar snorted at the sight of all that smoke. Nonsense and superstition, he thought dismissively, pushing his wooden shutters open wider and looking out across his city. His city. The thought thrilled and satisfied him. Limestone walls and red clay roofs gleamed fresh under the hands of dawn. The thunderheads were sailing south out over the bay, not God-sent as all these simple islanders believed, only weather. He had already enacted the rule of Tar across the land to eradicate any such notion of a higher power beyond himself, sending his men to destroy every temple and place of worship they could find. There were no gods in Tar, only winds and stones and storms, not fate, only might. Gods did not win you cities, nor wreck your ship upon the rocks, only might and chance, and luck, and might was generally the best of the three. It was the prince's father who had declared it so in Tar some thirty years past, that there were no gods, only he, a god of men and land. The prince knew even this for the posturing it was, useful but empty. A god was only a man who got his way. Nothing and no one was holy, one's own death could not be controlled which did not make it sacred but simply a nuisance other men's deaths were more easily arranged if there were gods of thunder then surely he and his father would have both been struck by lightning long ago for declaring the gods a lie and man the only power well they hadn't been they were alive and well the prince ran his hands down his bare chest muscled from war that was proof enough The Prince of Tar, latest in the line of Kephthira's conquerors, had subdued the Acropolis at Crania with little trouble, his forces far outnumbering the city's guards. Tar itself lay to the west on a long, thin peninsula that jutted out from the mainland, but its empire was rapidly growing north into the mountains and east across the islands of the White Sea. Kefthira's previous ruler, a man not native to Kefthira but from the desert kingdom called Agat, that sat along the White Sea's southern reach, had been easily disposed of. For years, Agat's forces had been stretched thin due to a drought at home. Kefthira was a jewel, and so it had been passed between conquering hands for generations. Its biggest harbors were the color of purified lapis. Everything that was scarce in agate and in tar grew in abundance there. Olives and pomegranates and quince, figs and pistachios, and the little oak tree called kermes, for the insects who fed on its sap and produced a red dye under their shining carapaces. The island's central mountain, Mount Enos, was a rarity for its pine-dark slopes, Thunderhead sat on the mountain as queens upon a throne, and more rain fell against its verdant slopes than anywhere else all across the White Sea. It was mainly that dark, unbroken pine forest for which Kefthira was invaded, that and its position as an outpost between enemies. Tar had long since deforested most of its native mountains and hills for timber, and Agate, being a desert land, never had any to begin with which made the acquisition of a forested island all the more appealing. For close to 300 years, Kefthira had been Agate's furthest colonial outpost. Mostly their reign had been an economic one, trade-based, and little concerned with day-to-day life. Fishermen and traders learned the Agat words for the things of their crafts, and otherwise carried on as they always had. The agate court at Crania was lavish but insular, and little affected the common folk save in the way of religious decrees. Always conquerors brought with them their gods. But now a Tarish prince sat on the Kefthiran throne, the youngest son of the king of Tar. Kefthira had been his first conquest, led alone and without the shadow of father or brothers. He was impatient now though it had been only a month since his decisive victory, to turn the court at Crania into a place of unrivaled splendor. Already his men were busy looting the coastline. He wanted silks and carpets, robes and cloaks and wall hangings, all spun and woven new for his court, so that he might welcome his brothers and his father into a kind of opulence they would never have expected he could achieve so quickly. He wanted to exceed them in all things— Already, he could see new gashes along the slopes of Mount Enos, where his men were harvesting lumber. Their bare, widening swaths gave him pleasure. He wanted a court of red, the finest crimson. Trade in purple was on the wane across the White Sea. The little whirl-shelled creatures from which it came were all but extinct from the hunger of princes and kings, for robes the color of storms, but red. This was a better color even than purple, and Kephthira was known for its kermes, its vats of vermilion. He would make red the color of kings. Only a fortnight passed, he had sent his men to seize a woman, one of the dyers of the north coast renowned there for her red, so they might have the best crimson made right inside the city walls, his own red. No one but he would be privy to it. Slave women had been set to work spinning and weaving cloth for her to die. The latest cartload of female prisoners promised more hands for the weaving and more maids for the kitchen and hearth, too, as they had the unfortunate habit of getting with child. The Prince's Bastards and His Soldiers Besides the Prince's desire for a red court, the soldiers from Tar were short on clothing of every kind, having ransacked half the island and unthinkingly burned most of its looms. Where villages remained intact, up the steep rocky flanks of far Mount Kahlo, hidden in oak valleys out of sight of the sea, the women were not forthcoming with their linen or their wool. The island had been conquered many times before, and the people knew it was best to remain as quiet and uninteresting as possible, like the sheep they tended, and hope the threat would pass, and that life returned to some semblance of what it had been before. But the men of Tar were different than the men of Agate whom they had taken the island from, and the eastern steppe riders before them both. They saw no reason not to seize a village just for the sport of it, killing the men and taking the women back by the cart road to the capital. They struck at random like boys at play, gluttonous and cruel. Some villagers responded by hiding in the forest, others with defiance. Far up Mount Enos, one village refused to be taken, though they were far outnumbered. Old men fought with rakes and axes. When the women saw that they were surrounded, and that they would be seized, they joined hands with their children and danced the harvest dance in a circle at the farthest cliff's edge. One by one, they stepped over the side, all the while singing— until only an old woman was left singing the song of the barley alone. At last, she leapt too, with a curse for tar upon her tongue. Centuries before Agate, Kefthira had been invaded by the nomads of Heladia, who sought land to pasture their livestock and grow their strange rye and barleys. Before the men of Heladia, Kefthira had known no conquest, Back then, earth kept her own justice. When someone wronged her in any significant way, she swallowed him and left a mountain in his place. Not the pettier wrongs that humans so often fought over my pasture, my silver, my wife but wrongs that bent the boundaries of a wider wholeness, wrongs that harmed the health of woodlands, of stream beds, of seas. In those days, humans could still understand the language of animals and followed their laws of balance and restraint. Cycles of abundance followed cycles of lack, and worship was made with dance and song. In a tongue, the oaks and birds and bears all gathered near to hear. But when the horse riders from Haladia first came across the mainland and colonized the islands of the White Sea, they killed most of the bears without ceremony. They cut the trees without prayer. They slaughtered men and took their women and looked up to the sky, not down to the ground, for their gods. They set their cattle loose everywhere. Powers too powerful for names became nymphs that gods chased to the last, turning into every kind of bud and beast until they were seized and bedded on cold ground which did not, no matter their screams, swallow them whole. And because earth no longer seemed to exact her justice, the people believed that maybe the new rule was her will, the will of unseen forces. For would she not have buried these men and their horses under a mountain long ago, if it had been otherwise? But they did not reckon the earth's own sorrow. How her darkness was her power. How she could not swallow when humans had lost the words of the dark country below their feet. The words that animals know, and stones, and stars. For her justice had been theirs. The dark country works too slowly for human knowing when words are lost. Slow, said the stories that women remembered down the generations of war. A piece here, a piece there, none of it entire. A human life is only a day in her time, not yet even the night slow, in the old words for stone and sea, slow, until words were whole again and made of fat and darkness, slow, she promised. After a time, no woman could quite remember what all the stories meant or how anything could ever be changed. Only the words and their pieces remained, surfacing in dreams when they had been all but forgotten from some great and bottomless depth. The door opened behind the Prince of Tar as he stood at the window. He hoped it was the pretty serving girl with his breakfast tray and her body on the offer, too. He turned, hot with the thought, But it was only the old charwoman, Areti, lined as a horseman's boot and just as dark, come to stoke the fire. It was early. Normally he slept past dawn and didn't stir when she entered, but the thunder had woken him today. Areti was startled to see the prince at the window, unclothed. She began to back away. Get on with it, then, he snapped, turning, irritated by her age and her body, lumpy as a quince in the doorframe. He was disturbed by the way her dark eyes lingered on his half-risen cock, not with the blush of the serving maid, but with a cold, almost clinical disdain. Unless you feel like a fuck, he added savagely, more irritated still that she would not turn her eyes from him. There were a lot of things R.I.T. felt like saying in reply, coarse, nasty things and perhaps a handful of hemlock tossed in his fire among them. But she valued her life. Free or enslaved, she loved without fail the blooming things, the smell of the sea, the blue-green olive trees, the sun. For why else had she not thrown herself off the walls at midnight long before? Besides, there was that nagging feeling she had more and more of late, of something she could not quite remember that nevertheless needed to be done. So she allowed herself only a dry little chuckle, and a single knot untied from the bit of lace in her apron. It was a strange, girlish sound, and it sent a flick of dread down the prince's spine. She built a sturdy, eager fire of olive wood and did not look at him again. The fire was smokeless and hot. She dusted the ash from the hearthstones with the boar-bristle brush that hung at her waist and tossed a handful of rosemary into the blaze. Just as the sprigs caught flame, the stone walls made a low jolting noise, shuddering dust. The fire leapt and one of the logs fell out onto the floor. Outside, the horses pulling the cartload of women through the city's gates bolted. There was a clatter of hoofs and the sound of one wheel breaking out in the entry court. Calmly, RT rolled the log back into the hearth with the iron poker and said a prayer for stillness out of habit. Small earthquakes were so common on the island of Kephthera that the people grew uneasy without them. Already the earth had quieted again. But the prince's hand had gone very white where it held the bed's oak post. R.T. wanted to laugh. Outsiders were always uneasy when the ground shook. Instead, she bit her tongue and watched the fire until the flames had grown orange around the log once more. Another, much smaller earthquake quivered far underground, but the prince didn't notice. The serving girl had come in with the breakfast tray now. Arati could hear her little laughing sighs. Disgusted, she stood. It was then she saw the shapes of snakes flickering across the olive wood in the hearth. The lace in her apron pocket, which she worked on daily between tasks, felt hot against her thigh. Alive. She stepped back from the fire and the lace stilled again in her pocket. Oh, said Areti, eyeing the flames. The snakes were still there, seething, shadowed inside the heat. The old word for snake came to her, a thick, smooth word that curled on her tongue. She didn't speak it. She wasn't sure she had ever heard it spoken, or how she knew it now only that with its knowing she knew other things, brief but vivid, and the lace in her pocket seemed to be of their shape. It was as if she could see all the threads of the world, each thing hooked to the next and all of it pulsing and alive. That was how the old language spoke. She knew this without ever having been told it as she looked into the fire whose shadows were snakes. And she knew that what made her a woman... And had since she was young carried the shape of this power that the knowings she had dismissed for her whole life were, in fact, nothing less than this her own power. Old woman, came the prince's voice from the bed, muffled, a giggle beside him. Aretti didn't turn. She barely even heard him, so full was she suddenly with her own selfhood. Old woman he repeated with more disgust now. She must be mad. Leave this room, old woman. You're spoiling my mood. That evening, Areti's eyes roved the slave woman's weaving quarters for signs of snakes and found them everywhere. The way a ball of red wool fell, serpentine. The way a hank of yellow fleece at a spindle tip danced its vortex. She saw that all of it spoke, but she did not know what it said. Talk was low among the women. The prince's new dye woman, Zola, sang a Kermes gathering song from a a valley up the northwest coast. A matron, but firm and slim despite, with long breasts and fine wide hips. Her black hair was braided in a heavy hank straight and thick to her waist as streaked with silver as a moonless night. She sang in a deep voice, a low, dark river of wine run through with sorrow. Arati hadn't paid her much heed before tonight. She was just another woman with sadness in her eyes, with a burnt village and a slaughtered husband crouched there like silent screams in her heart. So much loss had made Arati distant and hard. But tonight she watched the woman from a terrace and saw the red snaking at her hands as she dipped and tested her crimson skeins. A new girl, Lilith, whose name was the only word she had uttered since she arrived, sat in a dark corner trying to spin flax well away from the others. She was making a mess of it. Her skinny hands shook in the torchlight and she pricked one finger on the distaff beside the heap of sun-burnished flax. The pain of the prick, though light, broke her. There was so much in her ready to break. She stifled a sob. Arachi looked up at the sound. It was its own thread, and it pulled her to her feet, seeking the source. Arachi hadn't been there earlier when the latest cartload of women arrived. She'd been in the prince's room building up the fire. Whenever she could, she tried to be in the slave women's quarters when the new ones arrived, to help bathe and clothe them in fresh linen, to comb out their hair and braid it back, sponge compresses of rosemary and thyme on bruises and wounds. As for the unseen wounds, the sons or husbands or fathers whose deaths they had witnessed, the damage often done to body and to spirit, R.I.T. burned a bit of the resin of the poppy to let them sleep that first night in oblivion. She was the only one of the women to administer such occult mercies. Others looked at her with fear or sidelong, knowing the danger in the practice of old ways, especially now. Clearly the poor child in the corner had received no such attention. A bath, yes, for her hair shone wet in its tight new braids, and she wore a clean belted shift with a plain black shawl. Maybe it had been hard-eyed Vela on hand when the cart came, a youngish woman from the southern coast whose grief made her mean. She especially scorned the ones who had been raped, as her husband had been killed protecting her from such a fate. She would rather her body had been defiled, but he were alive, than to have lost him thus, and so she hated those who had been with a kind of convoluted, irrational rage." Vela was watching Areti now from over her spindle, where a skein of fine wool grew. Her eyes were hard and perceptive. Areti tucked the lace into her apron as she made her way towards Lilith. A few others glanced up, then away. Sorrow lay so close to the skin. Someone sighed but didn't stir. Zola was the only other woman to rise as well and go to the girl. She didn't stop her low singing as she moved, but Aretie could see that the red snakes were still at her hands, though she'd set her skeins aside. When she blinked, they were gone, coiling into the fire's shadows, which leapt across the room where the girl sat sucking her pricked finger. Aretie and Zola reached her at once, meeting one another's eyes only then. A strange recognition moved through them and through the limestone floor through the worn goat hair carpets and their fading patterns of cross and line. Zola felt what she had only felt one other time before, in the oak grove when the men of Tar seized her, and the red of the Kermes had risen through her body to protect her. Arti felt the same power she had been watching all day, and all her life without her knowing it. Filaments moving. Child, said Zola to the girl, Offering her hand, spin no more tonight, we will finish the work. Three. Before ever and any, the stones dreamed, the limestone, the granite, the flint. When stones walked, the world dreamed. In the dream, stars came down to crouch in stones and tell them words. Stones could go anywhere back then. Time had not yet begun. Kephthira walked everywhere, moon-white her limestone. Where she went and what she saw, those are a greater mystery. The word that rang in her when the world was stone and dreaming. That is the word the snake swallowed and swallows still. The first maid told by moon. Of stone, from the Old Language. 4. Lilith never intended to become a bandit, neither did the three shepherd brothers who saved her life. But loss necessitates many unlikely things. She never intended to become anything other than a small version of her mother, a fisherman's wife who mended pine-dyed nets by candlelight who could gut a fish without looking and knew all the lore, prayers, songs, and secrets of the moon that a woman could know in those times, given what had been lost. But the soldiers from Tar wanted the eastern port called Poor, where Lilith and her parents lived. And to secure it, at the end of the first month of their rule, they took possession of every last residence, killing anyone who didn't flee. Lilith's father wouldn't leave, and her mother stayed by his side. My blood is this sea, my soul is a fish, he said. He armed himself with net and fish knife and an anchor for a club. Her mother did the same. Hide, my little goose, my dove, she said to Lilit, and tucked her gangly-legged into the burl of an old olive tree behind their small stone house, a hollow where Lilith had often played. It was beginning to feel too small for a thirteen-year-old girl, but still she managed to tuck her knees out of sight, Fist tears back down her throat and wait. Run, my heart, her mother said. Run in the night when you smell their cook fires. Run to the cave and wait for help. And do not be afraid for us. We are ever in the hands of the moon. Look to her and I am there. Lilith didn't understand then why this sounded like a goodbye. She was too afraid to understand anything Later, huddled in the olive tree, she heard the screams and saw the men from Tar with their plumed helmets, their bright breastplates and their war horses in the streets of poor. Then she knew. She knew that the screams from her house were her mother and father going. She wanted to run right then, but she held her mother's words close like white sea stones, like pieces of moon, "'and waited until the evening star had risen. "'All was quiet then, save a blaze of cook fires in the streets of poor "'and the voices of blood-drunk men singing and shouting and laughing. "'They didn't sound like men to Lilith. "'Their language was rough and spined. "'It was angled in their throats. "'To her, they sounded like demons.' She uncrooked herself from the olive burl and saw then that her mother had stuffed a bundle of shawl and dried fish and bread beside her. With this in hand, she ran. The night smelled of smoke and a cold wind off the sea. It smelled of metal and of blood, but that was the smell of fear in Lilith's nostrils, its taste in her mouth, which she forced closed to keep herself from screaming. She knew the way to the cave by full moonlight, but tonight there was no moon, only the stars thick in their brightness. Milk from the breast of the moon her mother called that snaking way. Tonight, Lilith only saw blood. Still, she found her way in the dark. Her feet knew it, bare for silence. She made no more sound than a bird. Just the small hush of her feet, the feathered rustle of her skirt, her bundled food, Following the river bed into the gorge, souls on smooth white limestone, the summer fall of sycamore leaves. Where the river bent left at the sideways scrub oaks there was a moonwise path, steep as a goat track up the gorge wall. It was best not to look down. When Lilith was younger and her mother first brought her to the cave called Drakaina to leave offerings for the moon, she had frozen halfway up from the fear in her legs, but her mother had shown her how to breathe away fear. She had shown her that fear was a priestess whose lessons were hard but vital. Now she remembered her mother's words, not for fear of heights, but for fear of what she had seen and what she had not seen of the men of Tar. Her hands were clammy with it on the helping boughs of the scrub oaks. Her knees shook with it on the stone ledges where soft sages grew. What it had been like when her parents died. If the moon had folded them into her light, into the curve of eternity, into her coves of salt. And had the men of Tar seen the moon do so, bone white? Surely not. Surely they could not or they would not do the things they did. Tonight, the climb was endless. Lilith was walking into the dark and into the stars, right up into the constellation they called the Moon's Crown, that northern circlet led by a bright and distant planet. Her breath and her knees made her dizzy, Her mouth was dry, but she said the words her mother taught her, the prayers so old they were in another language, passed on from mother to daughter since before the time of kings. Words for the moon, for the stone, for the water, for the life inside the dark seed. She stepped on thyme and furred sage and smelled their night scents. At last... Bruising her nails, she pulled herself up, the last stone ledges, and reached the cave. Its darkness was complete. She lit the candle from her mother's bundle with a flint. Then the cave shuddered and loomed, but its ledges and ribbons of stalactite drip. Its floor stones and small fire circles and far recesses were all familiar. She lay a crust of her bread on the offering ledge. Clambered into the deepest, darkest corner, far back in the cold where it smelled only of earth and nothing human. There, exhausted by fear and by grief, she slept without moving and without dreams. Wait here for help. Others will come, her mother had said. Never forget whose hands your life belongs to so lilit waited for four days and four nights eating the salted fish and the crust of bread leaving a small portion of each as an offering though she starved she lit no fire fearing the smoke's give away she only ventured as far as the cave mouth to relieve herself by the fourth day she was in danger of dying from thirst by then she was too weak to move and too sorrowful No one is coming, mother, she rasped into the dark. Her lips bled. Only a handful of other women and their daughters and granddaughters still came to the cave as Lilith and her mother did. It had been many hundreds of years since women had gone openly to worship in the island's dark, to listen for what it said. Five hundred years at least, since there had been schools for women to study the mysteries found only in that slick, chthonic quiet, bearing snakes in clay vessels. Lilith's mother whispered some of those stories at night and on their way up to Drakina. Some of the words were in that older language, that language which hissed and waned and waxed and lapped. Now they waxed dizzily through Lilith's weakness as she lay in the cave dark, smelling chthonic depths and old fire ash. Strange dreams began to visit her: the dark wet warmth of being born, the suffocation and then the sudden screaming light, snakes hiding by hundreds in the earth. The little broad-hipped, snake-faced figurines and votives on the ledges came to life, dancing, calling out her name until her name meant nothing and she was nothing and the cave was her mother and she was only a little stone that had been around as long as stars, to whom death also meant nothing. At last she dreamed she was cocooned in spider silk like lace and knew that she was dying, that all the other women had been killed, that no one would come for her was she the last who knew the old words now she rasped them a stone song to the darkest part of the cave into the cleft into the underworld stone snake bear salt water Moon, red. Snake, stone, bear, salt, water, moon, red. Stone, snake, bear, salt, water, moon, red. That's how the bandits found her. Curled up like a near-dead lamb in the furthest dark, her lips to the wall. There was a little moisture there in the stone, which she had licked. A dying nymph, a husk, a child, called Alzance, the oldest and the one who saw her first. He kicked back the goats and the black dog at his heels. He held a torch of olive wood dipped in oil, and the light blazed through Lilith's darkness, waking her enough to croak. Water, cried Alzance. The giant, Lilith thought. A beard of wild black wool, and hair the same, and skin as thick and dark as acorn shells, and knives all along his belt, and silent kidskin boots, and four goats with horns and no bells. Just enough for milk and meat. And there was a shaggy black dog, silent as earth, and with a white star on his chest, who watched her. The cave was suddenly full of men. Three only, but they seemed dozens to Lilith. The first one, the biggest, scooped her up as if she were no more than a newborn child and laid her on a goatskin. He fed her the water from a squeezed bit of leather so she didn't choke on her own thirst. A smaller man, but still of woolly beard and wild dark eyes, built a smokeless fire. The dog lay down beside Lilith and put his head on his paws, whining. His eyes were amber. She slept again. The three were brothers, and only bandits of late, spurred thus by desperation when they lost their home and flocks to the men of Tar. The youngest was fifteen, the oldest twice that, and a widower. Alsans, Spiros, and Vries, they were called, and even Vries, the youngest, had a thick and early beard. It would be as woolly as his brothers soon. Do you worship the old gods, too? Lilith said when she was awake again that evening and had swallowed down a whole horn of water. "'The goat-hoofed one? The piper? Are you his? Am—am I dead?' This thought alarmed her more than a little, and she sat up all the way, propped on skins by their hot and smokeless fire. Meat cooked there in a soup pot. All three laughed at this, enjoying the laughter, for there was little enough to laugh at these days.' The goat's grazing sage at the cave mouth looked up. No, little lady, said Alsans. His broad, furred face seemed gently when he smiled. We aren't wood folk, though we do honor the name of the hoofed one, especially of late. He put a hand on the cool, mineral-lined wall. Is it a holy cave? We are far from home and sought it for the shelter. The goat seemed to know the way. It is. Lilith swallowed her mother the old words the moon tears sat close behind her eyes and though he meant it kindly they began to fall when Spiros the middle brother stood and bowed to the ledge of figurines and vessels making a sign of honor with his hand not everyone still remembered or made that sign He was a little clumsy, but the low murmur of his prayer, asking forgiveness and protection from the cave's mother, warmed Lilith beneath her tears. "'Did they burn your home, too?' said Vries, eyes big and bright on Lilith like the dogs. He got a heel in the side from Alsance. "'Little brother, that is no way to soothe a child.' "'I am no child,' Lilith said. "'Not any more.' I'm all alone, so I must be a woman now. She shot them all a fierce look, tilting up her sharp chin. She supposed, belatedly, that she should be wary of strange men. But these men did not frighten her, despite their shagginess, their size, and their many knives. She felt herself in the company of bears, like in an old story. Her look quieted them. It was gaunt and angled in the firelight her brown eyes hollow, her black hair matted and wild, her nose sharp like her chin. A witch girl, she looked, a nymph. Childish, yes, for she was yet a gangly, flat-chested little thing, but there was a glint of the fierce woman she would become. A woman that, four days past, she never dreamed was in her. Vries blushed. The others lowered their eyes before the hurt in hers, and the power. You'd make a good bandit with a glare like that, Fries blurted, breaking the silence. This time it was Spiros who healed him. Alcance only laughed. Little brother, being a bandit has done nothing for your manners, he said. But in his eyes was the darkness of what he had seen. Still, it made Lilith laugh too. The sharp points of her face softened. Spiros handed her a small bowl of broth, cautioning her to eat it Slowly. Outside, dark fell. The horned moon rose over the sea, her path netted with hunting bats. The brothers fashioned a sheath of goat leather for Lilith that night, and Vries gave her his lightest dagger. In the coming days, they made her a small bow from the willow growing along a seep, and arrows of oak. In the forest above the cave, they taught Lilith to shoot her arrows straight, but she managed well enough. And so she became one of them, a bandit and an outlaw, living in the cave called Dracaina and making small mischiefs among the camps of the men of Tar. They knew that they were not numerous enough to withstand even a single sighting, so they made like ghosts, so silent and cunning on their feet that they could lift a handful of barley from a sack of horse grain in the heart of an armed camp, Dusk was their favorite time, the hour the bats came out. Little bat, they called Lilit, for she was just as swift and small and clever, and because she came to love the bats who slept in their cave. She said prayers for them at sundown when they flew out for their supper, and watched the tiny mothers suckle their bat pups upside down in the shelter of shadow. Together, Lilith and the bandits haunted the men of tar. It was the only form of vengeance available to them, short of a suicide mission, and maybe, miraculously, their mischief would spook the soldiers into retreat. It was Lilith's idea, the haunting. To cast terrible brief shadows in the night outside their tents using sticks and cloth and bones and a lantern held aloft. To cry out at unearthly voices from the blackest hour of night. To leave claw prints in blood on the village streets using the talons of a dead owl. You are our luck charm, little bat, Alzant said by the fire after a very near escape from a camp in the southern mountain pass where the cypress grew thick as bristles on a boar. They'd been out to steal back a ceramic crock of sheep cheese that the men of tar had stolen from the larder of an old shepherd's wife, and return it to the poor woman. Lilith was always sent up a tree as a lookout, for she was nimble and quick, and her eyes were like a bat's hearing, sharp and uncanny. This time, her owl's hoot of warning had been drowned out by the bellowing of a bull being slaughtered, without ceremony, at the foot of an evening fire. A dog had spotted Spiros as he crept in the shadows toward the cheese where it sat in a cart of spoils. Lilith saw the dog, but Spiros did not, and on he moved, step by step, making himself a shadow. Vries and Alsace, meanwhile, created a commotion on the camp's western edge by cutting free the tethers of three donkeys and tapping their haunches with fire-hot pokers to send them galloping. They took down two tents at least, tangling their hooves in the ropes. But the dog ran barking at Spiros and he made to snatch the crock of cheese. Lilit hooted and hooted again, knowing it didn't matter now because the dog had taken hold of Spiros' leg and surely any moment someone would notice and come with a knife to kill him. The black dog, who now preferred Lilith's company to any, sat at the base of the tree. It took all of her power over him to keep him from barking, too. She crouched with her back to the trunk, stroking and stroking his silky head, her eyes squeezed shut. Words her mother had once said to the moon she repeated now at random. Surely the brothers would all be caught and killed. Surely she would be left alone again. In her mind, she made little cords like her mother's nets, one for each of the brothers, and in her mind, the cords she made became a net that swept them toward her, safely, all unharmed. What felt like a very long time later, she opened her eyes at the sound of Spiros' heavy breathing. Alsanse and Vries were on his either side. Blood dripped from Spiros' leg, but it was a minor wound. There was no sound of pursuit, only Alson's low whistle, and the sea's dusk wind blowing in the olive boughs. All of their eyes were at her feet. The black dog whined. A thin white snake coiled there, its head meeting its tail just before her toes. It seemed to be asleep, but when Lilith looked down and saw it there, it lifted its head and was gone again so quickly that later, beside a fire in the cave once more, Lilith wondered to herself if it had melted away right into the earth. In the following weeks, Lilith's presence made them bolder, wilier. Something about her began to make them half believe their own hauntings and what the men of Tar whispered around their fires when they thought their commanders couldn't hear. That spirits, old spirits, haunted the southern valleys of Kefthira. That they'd rather be back home again in Tar where a shadow stayed a shadow and where the night kept its own silence. Now, Lilith always nodded the brothers to her in her mind, though she knew not if it helped, twisting little pieces of autumn grass into knots to match the ones in her mind as she called her lookout calls from a tree. Then one day, Vries had a reckless idea, and Lilith, out of an impulse she could not fully explain, would not let him do it alone. I'll dip my own feet in blood, he said by a morning fire as Alzant stirred barley in a pot with goat milk. "'and walk down the village cobbles, "'in the place where their commander sleeps in Samos. "'That will give them a bigger scare than any owl's claws. "'They will track the blood back to us from your feet,' "'said Spiros to his brother from over a rabbit hide which he was tanning. "'Or a sentry will see you. It's a bad idea. "'But it's my own and not yours. "'Our plans are always yours and carried out by you,' the boy replied. "'He was looking at Lilit and not at Spiros.' Lilith sat on the fire's far side, mending one of her deerskin boots. There was a little line of concentration between her eyes, and her black hair fell very straight and rough to her waist. What do you think, Lilith? His voice was strange and shy. The girl hadn't yet looked up, lost as she was in her work and her own thoughts. Alzance glanced at Spiros, who twisted his mouth in a broken kind of smile. She looked up then, and saw that it was for her, his shyness. She didn't know what to say. "'I'll come with you, Vries,' she replied after a moment, and her sureness unnerved them all. "'You know what a quiet shadow I can be. "'We will bring soft leather to clean and tie your feet "'so they will think we vanished into the air. "'Then they will really believe in demons.' Her eyes went bright and a little wicked. "'But Lilith,' began Alzance, his tone of father's. I am your luck charm, am I not? She said over him. Her quick, dark smile went right through him into the cave's quiet, and he could not resist. Later, when it was all over, Lilith cursed her own words, for surely there had never been any luck in her nor any power at all. Alzance and Spiros had kept watch one on a half-burnt rooftop, the other up a tree looking down across the village. Lilit and Vries had crept barefoot from the olive groves to the cobbled way that led between the dwellings where the battalion commander and his general slept. It was the third hour before dawn. Lillet's bat eyes found every bit of light. They'd watched for several nights before this to memorize the movements of people to and fro, and particularly of the long-limbed village woman who slipped nightly into the commander's chamber and did not leave. They'd watched until at last the streets were still and only Martins were abroad, rooting in the middens. Now even the Martins were quiet. All Lilit and Vries could hear was their own breath. They walked very slowly so that their footprints left no disturbances across the ground. Lilith carried the water skin full of Martin blood. Just where the cobbles began, she opened it so Vries could dip his feet in. His bloody footprints were bright in the darkness. Their shape frightened Lilith as she padded silently beside him. They walked together the length of the village street, trying not to breathe too hard, even though fear thudded through them. But when they came to the commander's shuttered window opposite the place they had agreed they would turn around and flee, up a lane that led through pomegranates back into the oak wood. They heard noises coming from within, A woman's high cry of pleasure. The lower noises of a man. They both went very still in the middle of the street. Their arms touched at the elbow. The noises grew louder, more breathless, then ceased. Lilith's arm felt very hot against Vries. She thought of that long-limbed village woman slipping nightly into the commander's bed. How it was she could give her body to a man of tar and why. Still, neither of them moved, as if the sounds of that copulation had broken something in the night, broken the spell they had been walking through the darkness. She realized sickly then that she had forgotten to pray to any moon or mother. She had forgotten to tie the knots in her mind. She tried to not entwine their safety quickly right then, but she was too nervous, and Vries was looking at her with too much trust for her to think of anything else except what was before them. A creak of the bed from within and a padding of feet roused them both. There was no time to bind Reese's feet with buckskin and wool to hide their tracks. There was only time to run. But the woman, coming out the oakwood door and into the starlight to relieve herself in private, so that she could wash away the commander's seed, saw both of them and the red footprints and screamed. This sent the commander running out half-dressed, calling in a frightened voice for, for his men. Torches were lit, and with the speed of a war camp, half a dozen soldiers were armed and on their bloody trail in moments. Alzance and Spiro saw it all from the rooftop and the trees and came running without hesitation and without hope. For there was little hope, three shepherds and a girl against the warriors of Tar, though they fought bravely to the last in the oak wood. As the dawn raised itself golden out of the sea. Five. Lilith stared at the two women who stood in front of her, offering her their kindness. For a moment, she was the girl before ever had come the men of Tar, before she had seen death and been split by a circle of soldiers shared as a deer that has been skinned between them. For a moment, her brown eyes in their hollows, her sharp chin and sharper nose quivered. Zola sat down beside her on one side, and Aretti on the other, careful not to sit too close. The smell of a mother, her dark and silver hair flashing, her small, strong hands taking over the spindle and distaff without effort or comment, her broad hips spreading out inside its linen skirts to touch Lilith's skinny haunch in a single place, came over the girl. She swallowed hard. I am no child. She said at last, stiffening herself away from that touch, clenching her body tight around the terrible wound in its center. She remembered as she spoke another time she had said the same words, and how naive they had been then, before she had known what it was that men can do to women against their will. But that remembrance brought back faces too dear, and she bit her own tongue in grief. Ah, said Areti, Her eyes were hard with understanding inside the dark lines of her face. She'd taken her hank of woven lace out again and worked at a corner of it with thick hands, brushing back bits of soot. "'You are a woman, then,' asked Zola, careful to keep her eyes on the spindle, her hands steady. "'This child could be little older than her tiln, though not as old as Essel. Eleven, maybe twelve. She'd meant to keep the names of her daughters buried deep in the tilth of herself until she could find some way to escape this place and seek them. But now, beside this girl, they rose, barefoot in the oak forest as she had last seen them, where the purple crocuses had just bloomed out of red earth after the rain. "'Please, oh please, oh mother, may they live, may they be unharmed, may I find them, oh my children.'" There was a scream in her, and it showed in her eyes what she tried to hide by looking down. She saw her own fingers shaking and stilled them. But Lilith was watching Areti's sooty lace, trying to find words that would not let the tears out around them. Yes, was all the girl could manage. With it, she saw not her mother, hiding her swiftly inside the olive tree nor the men of Tar over her and in her until there was only darkness, nor the day only a fortnight before she and the brothers were captured when her first blood came in the night over her thighs, and there was no one to tell, and she had crept down to the cold river to clean herself and bind a rag inside her small clothes. No. What she saw was the brothers, her bandits, killed by the spears of the men of Tar. Alsance, with the terrible opening in his neck, Spiro split open like an ox and everything vital coming out, Vries bleeding from a dagger in his shoulder where it met his chest, his eyes still open and bright with pain on hers as the soldiers took her away. Surely he was dead by now, her last friend, and the black dog dead beside him. She hoped he hadn't heard her screaming after. She hoped he was already dead by then. They called me Little Bat, you know, Lilith found herself saying. But this wasn't what she had meant to say at all. The words came out broken at the ends and choked. Then she was crying big warm tears that welled up from a great depth. Zola took the girl's head upon her warm lap, and Areti stroked and loosened her wet, tight braids. The feeling of that little head in her lap, those young hands bunched in her skirts, made Zola's husky singing break apart. Across the room of weaving, spinning women, went a silent movement of tears. A gaunt old woman from the eastern city of Samos began another song. One of the younger women near her knew it too, about the goose women who once lived in the blue cove of that eastern valley. How their feathered coats were stolen one by one by men. How they could turn to geese no more. Tears were a dangerous doorway, but as the old woman from Samos sang in a high, strong voice, made rough by a lifetime of olive smoke, the others who knew the song joined her, filling in the three parts so the room rang. More tears fell, new ones that had never been shed, They were a salt river that joined an old, forgotten sea. Zola wept for her husband, and for her girls, for her twin boys and the milk that still made her breasts ache, but she also wept for the sea, for the lost freedom of her body each morning, buoyant in the gentle tide, and for her oak trees and her little mother, Kermy's flocks, now tended by other, more cunning women, Jealous, greedy women who she knew had sold her family and her name to the men of Tar. Arati held both Zola and Lilith in her ropey arms, and the embrace smelled of olive wood and smoke. The lines and lumps of her old body were a comfort, as lying on the earth is. The sudden uplift of tears lasted only a moment. Each woman mastered herself clung to wool and flax, to spindle whorl and loom weight until the grief could be swallowed, battered, back into its hatch, the key hidden deep. The song ended. The fire was low. After a while, T rose to stoke it. She was charwoman everywhere now. She only removed her sooty apron to weave and to sleep. Her lace was turning black from brushing against her blackened apron. Tonight she understood that this was a part of its necessary making, though she didn't know how or why she knew. Things had always come to her thus, she saw now, a clear voice or word or task done in a particular way with careful steps. They were part of an unseen, dark incantation whose pieces she was only just beginning to recognize. The fire in the prince's room. The woman Zola with the red on her hands. How the look that had passed between them coming upon Lilith seemed to be made of its own secrets.